Well, if you have a Bible with you today, turn to Psalm 139. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. You can flop it open and find the Psalms and look for 139. Have you ever noticed that some car names are just downright ironic? Today we have the Suzuki Swift. I don't know what the zero to 60 time is on the Swift, but I suspect you should pack a lunch. Similarly, in the 70s, there was the Mercury Comet. Sure, a little slower, a little less glorious than a real comet. There were all kinds of very average cars with these quite prestigious, luxurious names. There was the Dodge Diplomat. No doubt fit for only diplomats. There was also the Dodge Omni. One of the ugliest cars ever made. Sorry if you had one. Now, the word Omni means all or universal. So Dodge may have meant that the Omni was to be in every man's car, someone, a car for, for all. But the word Omni is usually bigger than that, right? It's a little more grand than that. Especially when the word Omni is put with other words, and especially when it pertains to God. Theologians refer to some of God's attributes with this language of Omni. For instance, that God is omnipresent. He is all everywhere. His presence is everywhere. He's a spirit. He's not bound in a body like you and me. God is omniscient. He's omni-knowing, all-knowing. He's omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. He's the omni-God. Of course, he's the only God. The true and living God is all God. He's a universal God, and his attributes are all there. Perhaps more than any other two dozen verses in the Bible, Psalm 139 shows us this omniness of God. It's an extremely theological part of Scripture. And yet it's so far from being theoretical or impersonal. I hope you don't think theology and doctrine is merely theoretical and it's impersonal. This is experiential theology in Psalm 139. It's doctrine on fire. That's really the only kind of true doctrine there is. Psalm 139 is intensely personal. It's a prayer between King David and God. And it's a prayer about the implications of God's nature and our own. John Calvin, the reformer, began his famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, by saying that all truth begins with a right knowledge of God and a right knowledge of self. That's Psalm 139. As for God in Psalm 139, God sees all. He knows all. He's everywhere. There's nothing hidden from him. He creates everything, and he creates it intimately and intricately. And because he creates it, he creates it for his own purposes, which means he has a right to everything. He's sovereign over our lives. Now, what does Psalm 139 tell us about us? It doesn't just tell us that we're different than God. Of course we are. We don't have any of these omni-attributes. The question for Psalm 139 is, what's the difference mean for us? The difference between us and God? 
Or we could put it this way. Are these omni-realities in Psalm 139 scary or sweet? Is an omni-God a troubling thing or a comforting thing? That's what we're after today. We'll see that the answer is both yes and no. Let's read it together. 24 verses, so it's a bit longer than some of the psalms we've looked at in recent weeks. But we'll read it all together up front so we know what we're dealing with here. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. And lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, I think there are five sections to Psalm 139. The first is in the first six verses. It's that God knows you completely. God knows you completely. That's how verse 1 begins it, with a general statement of God's intimate and penetrating knowledge of David, and then by extension, you and me. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then from there, he gives us specific examples of how well the Lord knows us and where and how the Lord knows us. For instance, he knows your whereabouts. He knows your comings and goings. He knows, as it says, when you sit down and when you rise up. He knows not just your habits, like what your alarm clock is set for, but he knows the intimate details of the routine of your life. He knows intimately the mundane 
in your life. He knows your path. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You know when I go around, when I walk, when I'm about my business in the day. You know when I lie down. In fact, you know these whereabouts, these actions, before they even happen. He knows where we will go, not just where we are. And how does he know that? Well, in part, because he knows our thoughts, not just our actions. David said in verse 2, you discern my thoughts. He knows your thoughts completely. Have you ever been frustrated that someone has misunderstood you? We all have. Have you ever been frustrated that you can't seem to put into words exactly what you're feeling or thinking? Your, your capacity for communication is limited here and there's a problem because of it. Or have you even been frustrated with someone who's acted like they could peer into your soul and know exactly your motives, your thoughts, your intentions, just what you're thinking right then. And they don't. But God does. He knows our thoughts completely. He discerns our thoughts accurately. He knows our thoughts even before they happen. That's what it means in verse 2 when it says, You discern my thoughts from afar. It's not that God is far away. It's that he knows our thoughts far before they ever happen. By the way, did you know that God is outside of time? He's both in time and he's outside of time. He's in time in that we pray to him. He's in the now. He knows what now is. Prayer wouldn't make sense. Healing wouldn't make sense if God isn't in the now. That's all we know is the now. But God has another realm. He doesn't just foresee the future. He's there. It's ever before him. He's both in time and out of time. He has everything, everywhere, always before him. He doesn't have to look it up. He doesn't have to fast forward the real, then go back to live, like you do on your DVR. Oh, shoot, it's live, commercials, right? No, he's having all thoughts about all of his plan ever before him at all times in a way that we can't possibly imagine. He knows us, and he knows his plan, and he knows stuff. He even knows our feelings. If he knows our thoughts, and he knows our thoughts before they happen, he knows also what we're feeling. We shouldn't make a, a big divide between thoughts and feelings. Verse 2 says he discerns my thoughts, but, but in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew terminology and in Hebrew theology and in the Bible of the Old Testament, they wouldn't have made a big divide between thoughts and feelings. David's saying here, God knows my insides, not my organs, but my soul, my spirit, my mind, my heart. In short, according to verse 3, he's acquainted with all my ways, intimately acquainted. And if he's acquainted with all my ways, my location and my actions and my habits and my mundane routines, my thoughts, my feelings, then he's also acquainted with my words. He knows all of our words, verse 4 says. And that's a scary thing in light of Matthew 12, where Jesus said, On the day of judgment, people will give an account 
for every careless word they speak. For by your words you are justified, or by your words you are condemned. God doesn't just hear all of our words. He knows our words even before they're spoken. Verse 4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And if he knows the word before it comes out, then he knows the intentions, the motivation behind it. Sometimes you might play some mind games with people, right? You want to maybe say something that's nice but just slightly cutting. Maybe they'll smile as they receive it, but then feel a little confused afterwards. Lord knows that. He knows our intentions. He knows our motives. He knows us better than anyone knows us. Spouses get to know each other and get to pick up quirks. You know, when you raise your eyebrow, I know you're lying. When you flare your nostrils, I know you're mad, even though you say you're not. Well, God knows us on an infinitely deeper level, for better or worse. Mostly worse. Spurgeon was counseling one pastor once who was being wrongly maligned in his community and by his church. And he said, rejoice, brother, for if they knew your heart completely, they would say much worse. (laughs) Even when our enemies get things wrong and say things that are false, there are other things about us that they don't know. And we're glad they don't know it. And I don't just mean the big skeleton stuff, like everyone has an adultery in the closet or something like that, but just the motivations, the thoughts that come into our mind. We don't say everything even to our spouse, do we? Every one of us has a, a, a press secretary, like the president does. Every one of us has a PR manager working for us. It's us. It's ourselves. You see, there are certain filters that we use for different people. And certain people get less or more of us, right? For those people, it's a very fine filter and a little bit comes out. And then for others, it's a bigger strainer and more comes out. That's always been true. Isn't it especially true in our age of social media? We'd like to think that who we are is what's on my Facebook page. But we know that's not the sum total of who we are. There are all kinds of things we don't post. You don't post a picture of me spanking my kid, losing my temper. That, that would be unwise, right? There's a, there are many reasons why you don't do that. But that's part of who you are. You can't think, I am who people think that I am. And I get to control that. No. No, none of us is an open book. Part of that springs from sin, that we have things to hide, we have things to cover up, that we want to manage perception of us. And part of it's just normal. Part of it's normal that we have different levels of intimacy. Proverbs says, a fool tells all. You're not supposed to tell everyone everything about you. Not everyone wants to hear it, for that matter. We all have a right to some privacy with each other. Just not with God. We have no rights of privacy with God. There's no filter with God. We think that there is. We want there to be. We act like there might be. But there's not. 
God knows us completely because he's God. And that's comforting when people misunderstand us. But it's a a scary thing when we consider that our filters don't work with God. I remember when I was a kid, I often played spy. I was convinced my parents couldn't see me as I slowly crept and crawled across the floor. You know, the first few times they looked up and saw me and then I had to say something like, Hey, can you just pretend like like you don't see me? And then, you know, then they would... No, this is the game, and so you're not supposed to look when Ryan crawls on the floor, so then they wouldn't look. And I would deceive myself in thinking, I'm getting really good. I could go pro, spying. It's like the ostrich. It doesn't think anyone can see him because his head is in the sand. We do the same thing with God. We try to hide. We try to bury things. We try to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We're not good judges of ourselves. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. Paul shows us such a great example of this in 1 Corinthians 4. There, Paul seems to say that the Corinthians had been judging Paul and judging his motives. And he says, it's a small thing to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What's he mean he doesn't judge himself? He means in a certain way he doesn't judge himself, or to a certain degree he doesn't judge himself. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, or whatever they were judging him about. He's saying, my conscience is clear. I've looked, I've examined myself, I don't know anything that I need to fix here, but I'm not acquitted by my own judgment. It's the Lord who judges me. So Paul's saying, it's a comforting thing to know the Lord knows the heart not the Corinthians. On the other hand, it's a scary thing. He will know our hearts even far better than we know ourselves. There are levels of motivation hidden in our own hearts, and we deceive ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Often, we can't see ourselves one millionth to the degree that God can see us. I think Psalm 139 is heading in a direction of threat. I think David is seeing that it's a scary reality that God has this all-seeing eye ever near presence. You see in verse 5, that language, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. That might sound nice and comforting. You hem me in, you, you comfort me, you're around me, you surround me might sound nice and comforting at first, but I don't think that's David's intent. I think what he means here in verse 5 is, you put the squeeze on me. You've got me boxed in. You're everywhere. You know everything. And hence in verse 6, when he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, that might sound like it should be said with a smile and a glimmer in the eye. Oh, it's just beyond my understanding and it's neat. But it's that English word wonderful that might be throwing us off. Think of wonderful, not in terms of Disneyland, but in terms of full of wonder, full of awe, awe-filling, or awful. The old English word awful would be fitting here. We don't say awful is a good thing. Um, it's awful 
It's bad today when we use the word awful. But the old way of using that word awful was that things were full of awe. God is, in that sense to us, awful. I think what David is saying in verse 6 is, such knowledge of me is too much for me. I can't live up to it. Some years ago, there was a movie out called... uh, I know what you did last summer. I didn't see it. I don't know what they did last summer. But I suspect it was bad. Right? That's why it's a catchy title. I know what you did last summer. Oops, someone knows. You wish no one knew. Well, God doesn't just know what we did last summer, but every summer and every second. He knows it on a much deeper level than anyone, even we ourselves. And he doesn't just really, he doesn't just know the really bad things like your top 10 worst highlight reel, that really bad one, or even just the worst of the week. The Lord knows every action, every thought, every word, every intention, and he knows it all together. God's knowledge of you is complete. Do you feel hemmed in yet? Is this too awful for you? Well, that leads us to the next section. We could call it, God is with you unavoidably. God is with you unavoidably. A clear indication that there's some threat going on here in verses 1 through 6 is that the next verse has David wondering whether he can run, whether there's a place to hide. Verse 7 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Literally, from your face. We sang earlier, it's your face I seek. This is the anti-version of that when David says, where shall I flee from your face? We shouldn't be surprised by this. This is as old as the garden. It's as old as sin itself. After sin entered this world, Adam and Eve, remember, at first naked and unashamed, then sewed fig leaves together to make a covering because they were now naked and ashamed. Of course, it's literal that they covered their naked bodies with fig leaves, but it's also metaphorical in a sense, isn't it? They now have things to hide from each other. There's now embarrassment. There's now cover-up. Their shame. And they try to hide themselves from God. God comes calling. He doesn't come calling because he doesn't know where they are. He wants them to know that he knows they're hiding. And that's why he comes calling. But their hiding from God in his own garden was absolutely futile. And with a similar instinct, David, he entertains entertains some hypothetical hiding places in Psalm 139. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. And if I go down to Sheol, the place of the dead, in other words, if I, if I die, I lay down in death, you're there. In verse 9, he says, if I could take wings and fly out with the morning... Or, go down and live in the deepest parts of the sea. Even there, he's there. 
He's at the horizon where the sun rises. He's at the darkest part of the sea. Not where SpongeBob lives. Further down, where it's really dark and octopuses are big. That's where he lives. He's there. But notice in verse 10, David says, it's not just that God's there, but he's good and he's near and he's gracious in the midst of it. David's fleeing, and yet he says, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You'd almost expect you're there and you backhand me because I'm on the run. I'm trying to flee. I'm like Jonah. Go to Nineveh and preach repentance. What does, known, uh, what does Jonah do? He heads in the opposite direction as if he can flee God. David does the same thing here, or at least he's tempted to. He imagines it. God's goodness and nearness is right there in the midst of his fleeing. How about hiding in darkness? Imagine pure blackness, darkness, no light. Remember that this was written long before any night vision goggles. So if you can imagine what it is to be in black darkness, David entertains that. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me or hide me. The light about me will be night. Even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. Our barriers for seeing and knowing aren't his barriers. We're limited by sight and, and by light and, and by space and, and time. And God's limited by none of those. There's no hiding from him. God sees all things because he is everywhere. The omniness of our God is not just that he can see all. There's a difference. It's not just that he can tune into any place. God is not a divine version of a night watchman with security monitors in front of him and the ability to go to any camera at any time or focus in on any monitor at any time. God doesn't say, I'll zoom in there on your house for a little bit and check in on you, see how you're doing, then zoom out and zoom in someplace else. No, God's omnipresence means that God is in all places at all times with the fullness of his presence. We body-bound human beings can't imagine what that's like. We're bound in these bodies, bound by time, bound by space, not God. Jeremiah 23, there God says similarly to this, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? I see all things because I am everywhere at all times with the fullness of my presence. Do you see how blind and stupid sin is? I say that as a fellow sinner. I say that as one who, like us all, was born running, hiding, denying, suppressing. Here David entertains the possibility of basically living on the other side of the moon if God's not there. He entertains the possibility of living down in the darkest parts of the ocean if God's not there. Like that would be a good thing to live down there. 
It wouldn't be a good thing, but sin is dumb and desperate and it's deceitful. And we would rather, by nature, live in the emptiness and self-deception of darkness than go through the pain of having our evil deeds be exposed. Like cockroaches that flee every time the lights turn on. That's our natural instinct. When there's light, we hide in our sin. Jesus said as much in John 3. He said, here's proof of judgment. The light has come into the world, referring to himself. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And yet, don't forget the amazing kindness of our gracious God that in the midst of your fleeing, perhaps, maybe you're not a Christian, and you'd say, yeah, I'm fleeing. Yeah, I'm hiding. Yeah, I'm pretending he's not there if he is. Isn't it amazing that God is still good and good to you? He causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He gives food to you and to me. I hope that his patience with you, his provision and goodness to you, even in the midst of your fleeing and suppressing, leads you to repentance. Or else his goodness and his patience will actually compound your guilt and your later judgment. That's what Romans 2 teaches. Paul says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to him in repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are actually storing up wrath for yourself. For the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's scary. It's a scary reality to think that we're successfully hiding from God. While he showers us with goodness and care like verse 10 talks about. In the process, we're compounding our guilt. God knows you completely. God is with you unavoidably. And then in verse 13, David gives us an example of this. He takes us to another secret place, another dark place, the womb. The third thing in your notes, God made you intricately. Verses 13 through 16 are this wonderful section here about God's creative power and intimate formation happening in the womb, a single human being beginning and being shaped by God himself. Like all of Psalm 139, it's amazingly personal, but it's also universal. It's personal in that, especially in this section, David writes it in first person. I, me, my. And yet, because it's true not just of David, but of everyone, this is universal. It means that you could put yourself in in these words. You could say them in the first person yourself. It means that God is amazing in his depth and personality and intimacy in his care for his creation, and also 
that he can juggle a million of these at the same time or a billion or billions of these at the same time he can persevere and sustain what is it 6.2 billion or 7.2 billion people on the face of the earth at any one given time what does he do how does it start verse 13 you formed my inward parts david says You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is active and involved in these prenatal stages of development. Hopefully you've seen pictures. You know, this is what it looks like at at three weeks and five weeks and ten weeks and, and 20 weeks and 25 weeks. And you keep going. You see the development. You see the formation taking place. David, way before there's anything like DNA, way before he even understood what the parts were or what to call them or what they did, he knew they were parts. He knew inside they're parts. He's been to war, right? He's seen a guy get slit open and guts spill out. He knows there are parts in there. And he knows that God's involved in forming them, knitting them, shaping them. And so verse 14, he concludes, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not just a natural process. Oh, there's something very natural about it, right? But God is intimately and personally involved so that David can say, I was made by God, not just made by my parents. In verse 15, he says, my frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret. You see, he's talking about the womb as that place of secret. It's, it's a hidden place. These are the days before you could peer in with sonograms and, and look and see what's going on inside. The womb in these days is a, a very private, hidden, secret place. No one knows really what's going on there until something comes out. David says God is there. It's no secret. It's nothing hidden to him. That's what he means, too, when he says the depths of the earth in verse 15. That's just a figurative way of speaking of that sacred, sacred, secret, hiddenness of the womb. And it was there, according to verse 16, that your eyes, David says, saw my unformed substance. It's not chronological here, is it? He's talking about inward parts being formed in verse 13, about his frame in verse 15. And now in verse 16, he goes all the way back to the beginning. You saw my unformed substance. It's clear what the Bible teaches, what God believes about when life begins. Life begins when God begins to shape and mold an unformed substance it's from there that there's this like it says in verse 15 this intricate weaving that goes on like a clever blanket god is making up you and me in verse 16 at the second half of it you also see something of what comes after the womb in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them God not only knows the future, he's ordained the future. He's planned our future. We plan our days, but the Lord directs our steps. The Lord overrules at times. This is all proof of what David has already said. 
God sees all, he knows all, and he is everywhere. You want proof? Just go to the womb to see God intimately, powerfully, intricately involved, working. Not just seeing, but doing. And now finally, this leads David to praise. Verses 17 to 18, look at that. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Literally, it should read, how precious are your thoughts of me, O God. God has thoughts of David. God has thoughts of you. And they're precious. And they're many. How vast is the sum of your thoughts of me. If I could count them, they'd be more than the sand. More than the sand, God's thoughts of you. It's just amazing, isn't it? That God not only just knows you or knows generalities about you or hears from you or takes a phone call from you. He knows you. He thinks about you. His thoughts of you are precious and they are more than the numbers of sand granules. But then this psalm takes an odd turn with the fourth section. The fourth section is that God judges righteously. He judges righteously. He knows us completely. He's with us unavoidably. He made us intricately, but he also judges righteously. Look at verses 19 to 20. These verses no doubt stuck out to you when we read them at the beginning. Let's read them again. What a turn. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And here's where the record skips. like, And the party stops. Say what? The first question we have to ask this is not just what is it doing in this psalm, but what's this doing in the Bible? Well, it's elsewhere in the Bible, for sure. These things of prayers against God's enemy or praying against what God is against is a dangerous thing, and it can be a righteous thing. What you see here is that this is not about personal revenge for David. David here goes from first person now to talk about God's enemies, your enemies, O Lord, those who hate you, those who have maligned you, those who take your name in vain, those who oppose you and your people even with the sword. That's not personal revenge that David is seeking. It's God's testimony being upheld. It's driven by a holy yet bold love for God and his name, and hence a strong hatred toward sin. It doesn't presume that David doesn't have sin. We know he had sin, and we know that he knew that he had sin. What he's lamenting here is the sin that is gross, that is just brazen, and he hates it. He desires for it to cease. And he wants God to stand up for his own righteousness and his judgment. And for God really to execute what he's already promised he will do. But then the question becomes, why is this prayer for judgment in this psalm? Right? We we just got done with the womb. 
Like, cute baby, and then kill them all, God. What? Well, there were some hints in what came before this section, this rough section here, that a change has taken place in David. You see, Psalm 139 is not all threat and trouble and fleeing and and judgment. There are hints of a progression or a change in David himself. In verse 10, remember this? Your hand shall lead me and you shall hold me. Even while I'm fleeing, uh, he's recognizing God's goodness, nearness, and care. In verse 14, he says, I praise you. There's praise there. It's not just fleeing. He's praising. In verse 17, he concludes, how precious are your thoughts of me, O God. And in verse 18, he says, I awake and I am still with you. And that sounds like God's presence here is comforting and good, not threatening and scary. So apparently a change has come about somewhere in the progression of this psalm where David has gone from seeing God's omnipresence as a threat to seeing something here now to be trusted, to seeing God's presence as something to be enjoyed. And it's with that that David now joins God in, he's in God's purposes to pursue to pursue people, to pursue you and me, to pursue the nations. And he will pursue them unto salvation or unto judgment. Those are the only two eternal destinies. David, like God, is zealous for a universal recognition of the omni-God. In some ways, what David's praying is simply what Philippians 2 says. That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will bow out of constraint. Some will bow before in faith. But we shouldn't think that David's wrong to pray like this in this context. God God himself apparently approved of David's prayer in Psalm 139 because God paraphrases it to the prophet Amos a couple hundred years later. Listen to this, Amos 9. Listen to how similar it is. God says, not one of them shall flee. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, hide from my sight. There I, I'll command the serpent and it will bite them. I will fix my eyes upon them for destruction and not for good. Whoa. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. In Hebrews... We read, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. David knows what Hebrew said. We must give an account. There's no hiding. Years ago, Francis Thompson wrote a a long poem called The Hound of Heaven about Psalm 139. It was about how we all run. But for Christians, we know this. The hound of heaven 
brings us home. He hunts us down. He gets us in a corner until we go, okay, I surrender. And I think that's what's happened with David. It's not explicit in Psalm 139, but it is clear from elsewhere that, well, what the fifth thing in your notes could be is this, God purifies fully. God purifies fully. You see, to those who don't run, they give up on running, and they turn themselves in in humility and faith, there is mercy, there's forgiveness, there's salvation. So David in Psalm 32 put it like this. When I kept silent about my sin, when I tried to hide it and cover it, Pretend it isn't there. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But, here's the turn. I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the change. It's not explicit in Psalm 139, but it's assumed there. Something changed where David went from fleeing from God to laying himself bare before God. That's what verses 23 and 24 are about. They say, amazingly, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. And know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, David isn't praying this because he's so much better than the enemies around him. He's not saying, kill them, but just go ahead, check me out. I think you'll find that I get an A+. There's nothing there. See if there be any grievous way in me. What's that? No? Okay, that's what I thought. No. You know, that doesn't gel with our Bibles. What's David doing? In some ways, this is nothing more than an expression of faith. It's bold assurance. It's confidence in God's grace. He's saying, God, I bring to you sin. And I bring it to the one who can do something about it. Hiding it doesn't cover it. It covers it for a time. It's just pretend. Hiding is futile. We must give it to the one who can do something about it. And now forgiven, even forgiven of future sin, we want God's blessing and leadership in ongoing confession, in ongoing repentance, in ongoing faith. We want his scrutiny to help us see more of what we hate and what we want less of. David courageously invites this all-seeing eye to help him see his own sin and fight against it. So I think Psalm 139 would ask you, are you running from God or are you running to God? Tim Keller says, there's no refuge from him, there's only refuge in him. Are you driven by that desperate but dumb 
impulse we're all born with to hide ourselves and our sin from God. The hound of heaven is on your tail. Give up. He's good. I pray you've given up. We as Christians, this is the very nature of what it means to be a Christian. We've given up. And now in helpless faith, we've laid ourselves bare with sin in all before the one who can do something about it. And we today know way more than David knew about what God would do with it. We know that God's persistent presence was manifested in him taking on flesh. Oh, he's always with us, but in Jesus he came to us as one of us, and he died in our place. God's unshakable presence is terrifying unless you believe that Jesus came and came for you and that Jesus was forsaken for you. You can't shake the hound of heaven. Jesus was forsaken, though, for you, that you might be accepted with God and restored to him. And when we know that he is our refuge, then we can read Psalm 139 from beginning to end with sheer comfort, happiness, joy, delight. We can, we can read that he searches us and he knows us and he knows our sitting down, our rising up. He knows my thoughts before they hit my brain. He knows my words before I think to say them. He's hemmed us in. And in Christ, that's a good thing. He's ordered our days. He made us just who we are. We can trust him with that. He's made us intimately. He's made us for his glory. We could go to the bottom of the sea and trust that in our remaining moments there, he's there. On the other side, you make your bed in Sheol, he's there. He'll always be there. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's with us now. And one day he'll bring us to himself. And we will see him face to face and we shall be like him. Which means we'll have no sin. And in the meantime, Psalm 139 helps us fight sin, doesn't it? It also comforts us, yes, but it helps us fight sin. May we this week, when temptation knocks at the door... Be reminded, he's here, he sees. When lust perks up in the heart and mind, and no one knows, no one sees. We Christians fight sin in part by reminding ourselves, God does, and he knows just how bad it is. May we flee sin and temptation and pursue righteousness, knowing the omni-God is our God. And where we fail, let's trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness. He came to us by dying for us. And he will bring us to himself.